Welcome to Mike's Notes. Today I wanted to talk about a few things from the first 50 pages of Thinking Fast and Slow by Dan Kahneman. If you're a member of our uh, book club, welcome. If you're just listening, you can go ahead and uh, join the book club if you want. I'll send out a URL that lets you sign up. But we're reading Thinking Fast and Slow by Dan Kahneman and we're trying to do about 10 pages a day from the book. And while um, while the book is pretty dense, as in there's a lot of words on each page and they're not that big, uh, Kahneman has really refined his writing style into something that's very conversational, it's very accessible, and even though he's written many academic uh, pieces, the stuff in the book is very accessible. And I picked this book because Trent Griffin has this book site where people list books and they vote up books and vote down books. And this book was really near the top. It might have been num the number one book when I chose it for our book club. And so it's definitely worth rereading. It's also fortuitous timing in that Michael Lewis just came out with The Undoing Project, a book about the work, the early work and the early lives of Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And um, reading Lewis's book was really a neat experience because I had no idea uh, of Kahneman's history. I didn't know he was uh, chased around France by the German army during World War II. I didn't realize that he had served in the Israeli military, one day leaving the university to go and fight in the Six-Day War and coming back and resuming classes a few weeks later. That just totally blew my mind when we think about some of the things that university professors complain about now. And I say that as someone who used to be a university instructor and that, oh, we can't have our class because the, the smart board doesn't work or I forgot my PowerPoint. Those were such weak excuses when you compare them to the things that Danny Kahneman lived and, and existed in. One of my favorite quotes from Lewis's book was when um, a student goes up to a, a teacher at, I think it's Hebrew University, and uh, the, guy, the, the teacher is asking the student, so how are your classes going this semester? And the kid says, well, you know, they're, they're okay. The professors here, um, they're not so great. And, and, this other, and this professor or this administrator says, well, well, why are the professors not great? This is like a great university, but you're very careful in hiring. And then the student goes, well, you know, they're okay, but they're not as good as Kahneman. And, then, and so, and this is what the quote that Lewis, uh, Lewis has in the book, this uh, administrator, this professor says, you can't compare teachers to Kahnemans. So even from an early age, Danny Kahneman was, was such a wonderful instructor and teacher and wise, and he explained things, and he... Um, he uncovered all of this really interesting stuff. And all of that interesting stuff is conveniently packaged in a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And in my notes of the first 50 pages, there were just five things I wanted to touch on today. One. Kahneman writes very early on in the book that, quote, most of our judgments and actions are appropriate most of the time, end quote. So Thinking Fast and Slow is a book about how um, we have this fast thinking system that acts and we have this slow thinking system that acts and they don't always act um, in congruence with each other. They don't always work together. Sometimes one uh, ignores the other. Sometimes one plays a larger role and that's what the book is about. But it's only about a certain segment of the decisions we make and the thinking that we do and the judgments we pass and the predictions we put forth. Most of the time, our judgments and actions are really good for a lot of things. We've evolved over millions of years. And 
the things that mattered in evolution, the things like the way we visually perceive information, some of that stuff is pretty good and it's going to work a lot of the time. But I think what Kahneman is going to get at, I think the big takeaway of this book is this we can identify situations where maybe our judgments and actions are inappropriate because we are not trained for them or we haven't evolved for those things. So we need to make sure that if there's areas we're not good at or there's areas we don't have experience with or if there's areas that change all the time that we don't necessarily rely on our judgments because we just don't have those skills for that. That's going to be hard to do as Kahneman points out. Two. The second point from the introduction that really resonated with me was this quote. A recurrent theme in this book is that luck plays a large role in every story of success, end quote. So luck is going to have a role, whether or not we acknowledge that. In a talk that Kahneman gave with, gave with Michael Mobison at the Santa Fe Institute in 2015, he put it this way. He said, success is, success is merely luck plus skill, and great success is merely great luck plus skill. So if we think about that algebraically, we can see that the skill variable is relatively fixed. You're not going to change that. But the real difference between success and uh, great success is going to be the difference between luck and great luck. Michael Mobison explains this in his book, The Success Equation, really well. Mobison encourages us to imagine two jars. One jar has a skill quantity, and one jar has a luck quantity. So if you pick a skill like writing or shooting free throws, or um, succeeding as the leader of a country, we have our skills that we can handle. We have these things that we can improve. So if you're a basketball free throw shooter, you can practice those skills. And if you get really good at shooting basketball free throws, then your quantities in that skill jar are going to be really high. So no matter what you draw imaginarily, as, as you, if you can imagine drawing a number out, and that's your skill, in much the same way like Madden football players have a certain skill quantity, or video games with uh, archers and elves and people like that, they have a certain quality and quantity for different skills. We can imagine that as the skill jar. So there's some things like basketball free throws that we can get better at, but we also have this luck jar, things that we can't control. And there's a wide range of outcomes, outcomes and scores that you have no power over. And you're also drawing from that jar for each success. And that's what Kahneman is saying when he says that we can have great luck or we can have normal luck. In a lot of situations where there's this great success, it also comes with a lot of luck. We can look at examples like tech technology people like Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg, and we can realize that even though those people had great skills, they had high draws from their skill jar, they were also incredibly lucky. In the book, How Music Got Free, the author there talks about this explosion of digital music. And there were so many things going on in the world, so many different factors, that Steve Jobs, for all of his brilliance and all of his design acumen and the way that he thought through things, he couldn't have understood all of these different factors that would eventually go on to make digital music a thing and lead to the success of the iPod sales. So we have to keep in mind that anything has some skill and it has some luck involved. Three. There are also things that will automatically happen that we have no control over. 
Kahneman opens the book with this picture of a woman's face, and she looks angry, she looks like she's going to yell, um, and this is what he writes, quote, a premonition of what she was going to do next came to mind automatically and effortlessly, end quote. So it's really interesting when you look at this book and you see this face, you don't even, uh, you don't consciously recognize that you think something, um, something bad or mean is going to come out of this woman's mouth. You just sort of expect it. It's this automatic system that, that your brain has. A few pages later, Kahneman has the Mueller liar illusion. That's the illusion where there's one horizontal line and it has um, basically arrows pointing out and there's another horizontal line basically with arrows pointing in and the tip of each arrow is where the line ends. If you're familiar with it, you can picture it in your mind. And no matter how much you know about this, how much your slow thinking can can influence you. You still see those lines as one longer than the other. And that's going to be an important part of this book is that some of these areas where we make mistakes and we don't know we make mistakes or we don't realize it as we're observing that. And that's going to be a good thing I think to keep in mind as we read Thinking Fast and Slow. Four. Our slow thinking is really powerful. It lets you do computations like 78 times 24. This is what Kahneman writes about those slow processes, though. Quote, it is the mark of effortful activities that they interfere with each other. And then later he goes on, as you become skilled in a task, it demands for energy diminishes. So we are only allowed to do, we are only capable of doing one really hard thing at a time. If you were to try to, let's say, um, learn how to juggle at the same time you're doing difficult multiplication problems. You wouldn't be able to do it because this slow thinking, this part of our brain that does this, it's um, not capable of doing more than one thing at once. And we see this uh, um, like when we're driving. If you're driving and it's raining out or the weather's bad or there's a lot of traffic, People in the car understand not to talk so much. You'll sometimes turn down the radio. That was a joke I remember as a teenager about why parents used to turn down the radio when they were in heavy traffic. And my friends and I used to laugh about it because, oh, you know, one is your eyes and one is your ears. But what we didn't realize is that they're both your brain. And there's only so much bandwidth that you can handle if you're going to do those things. Kahneman as explained in Michael Lewis's book, The Undoing Project, realize that we don't like to do this work. So we can train ourselves to get better at these effortful activities, but our brain really prefers to ski like Kahneman did. So Danny is, um, he's living somewhere where there's snow, and he realizes that cross-country skiing is really hard to go uphill, but it's much easier to go downhill. And that's uh, that was his epiphany for understanding uh, some of this thinking fast and slow. He realized that we prefer the easy way. We prefer not to do this effortful thinking, but we can increase it if we like to. Recently, I've been spending a lot more time on Instagram than Twitter or Facebook, and I was wondering why this is. What is it about Instagram that makes me want to spend a little more time there, wants me to check into that social app? And I think maybe part of the reason is because it's easier. It's easier for me to um, computate. It's easier for me to understand what an image is than if I'm reading text on Twitter or if I'm reading text on Facebook. It's been a while since I read Thinking Fast and Slow before choosing it as the uh, January 2017 book club 
choice. Um, and so I had forgotten where some of the ideas that Kahneman talks about came up in the book, but I was thankful that ego depletion comes up really early. This is what Kahneman writes. System 1 has more influence on behavior when System 2 is busy and it has a sweet tooth. Uh, a little later he goes on, self-control is tiring. And then the third quote that I picked out was, Tired and hungry judges tend to fall back on the easier default position of denying requests for parole. Now, these ideas are sort of in the front of my mind because Jocko Willink has been talking about them on his podcast, where there's this idea that your willpower is limited throughout the day. And so you draw down on that willpower in the same way that you draw down on your phone battery. The more you use it, the less you have later in the day. And so that's why people tend to make worse decisions like they snack at night or they watch TV at night or they do all kinds of things at night. And one theory behind this is that it's because your willpower is drained, just like a battery. But as I'm reading Kahneman, as I'm reading Thinking Fast and Slow, and I'm thinking about what Jocko Willink does, uh, two ideas came to mind about how to avoid this ego depletion. The first was in, is that you can train your self-control. So Jocko has done that. His tagline is that discipline equals freedom. And that discipline is merely his training his self-control. Cal Newport addresses this in his book called Deep Work. Newport says that the best work a knowledge worker can do is deep work, something that, that really moves the needle. But you can only deep, do deep work through practice. It's like conditioning if you're a runner or if you do any sort of endurance exercises. Is that Newport was only allowed to do short amounts of time of deep work. That is, he only had limited amounts of self-control where he could focus on the task at hand at first. And then as he built up his endurance, he was able to do more and more deep work each day. Even in thinking fast and slow, Kahneman uh, suggests that people are able to build the self-control, that it's not fixed like your phone battery. You can expand it. He writes that the University of Oregon is training six-year-olds how to do this. And this is when thinking fast and slow was published. So maybe some changes have moved on. But um, if we think of willpower or self-control or discipline as as um, something that we draw down during the day. We should also thinking, think of it as something that can expand during the day. It's like a removable memory card in an electronic device. You can, you can push it and pop out the old one and put in a new one if you build up those skills. And then the second thing related to ego depletion that really struck out is that you can have better defaults. So here even Kahneman notes that system two is busy and it has a sweet tooth. Well, give your system two something besides a piece of chocolate cake. Don't give it a default that um, is going to take away from whatever your overall, go overall goals are. And food is a wonderful example of this, where if you can figure out a diet where um, your default choices are healthy choices, that'll go a long way. For a period, I had success in this, when at lunch I only had salad or soup. And if it was warm outside, I had a salad. And if it was cold outside, I had soup. And that was a really good default because both were filling. Neither had a lot of extra sugar involved. They both had vegetables. And I always felt better after having soup or a salad. So that was a really good default in my own life. And defaults can be really powerful. Richard Fowler is a big fan of Danny Kahneman. And he's expanded on a lot of his work. And one of those is a book called Nudge. And 
the case Thaler makes for nudging is that defaults are powerful because people often don't want to put in the time. People are cognitive misers. They like to think in the same way that Danny Kahneman likes to cross-country ski. They like to go downhill where it's nice and easy. So if you have a default condition, if you have a default that is pretty good for the person, Thaler calls this libertarian paternalism. But if you have something that, that's, you know, mostly going to be good for someone, then that's good because uh, people are going to refer to that default. If their willpower or their discipline wears out, they'll, they'll refer to that default for, um, for something that they can trust. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you want to join in the uh, book discussion and join the book club, we have a Slack group. I'll also share some other notes on this podcast feed, and then you can check out my blog, thewaiterspad.com. Thanks for listening.